Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. Happy New Year. This is my first case of 2021. I'm wishing you all a much better year than the previous one that we had. I want to dedicate this episode to my cousin Tom. Tom has always had a passion for law and the progression of technology. He's like a jack of all trades. So many times I thought to myself while writing this, I bet Tom could somehow solve this case with all the knowledge of different areas he has. So cheers, brother. I love you. This is episode 25, The Disappearance of Ray Grecar. This story takes place in 2005. This was the year of Hurricane Katrina hitting New Orleans, Louisiana. Pope John Paul II died. Disneyland celebrated its 50th birthday. The highest-selling game console was the Xbox 360. And lastly, it was the year that YouTube started, which is the platform you're listening to this on. So thanks to the three young guys who invented this site. Ray Grecar, you know, I've been pronouncing his name wrong for years. I always thought it was Grycar, but it's Grecar. Ray worked as the district attorney in Center County, Pennsylvania since 1985 and up until his disappearance in 2005. He was born in 1945, so that puts him at 59 years old at the time this story takes place. Ray was born in Cleveland, Ohio. He received his Juris Doctorate degree from Case Western University School of Law. He started out as a prosecutor in a different town than where he would ultimately hold the rest of his career. He moved to State College, Pennsylvania in 1980, where he was assistant district attorney. Then he was elected as district attorney in 1985. He was reelected four times before announcing he wouldn't be running for reelection in the upcoming 2005 campaign. One thing I found crazy was that each time the election came around, Ray could spend less than $1,000 for his campaign. People just liked him as the district attorney, and he just kept getting reelected. Ray was described by his colleagues as a very hardworking, dedicated lawyer. He was passionate and on fire in the courtroom. He was this nice, friendly guy, but when he's doing his job and he needs to be a dickhead in the courtroom defending the state, he's doing it well. Ray married a woman named Barbara in 1969. They adopted a daughter named Laura in 1978. Ray and Barbara divorced in 1991. Ray married another woman in 1996 and divorced her in 2001. So at this point, he's got two marriages behind him, and he's paying alimony to both women. He's not interested in getting married again. He does have a girlfriend named Patty, though. I'm going to bring her up quite a bit as the story progresses. In 2003, Ray moves into his girlfriend Patty's house. Patty is an employee of the district attorney's office, so she was a co-worker of his. I'm not sure exactly what she did there. He may have even better boss. This was about two years before his different disappearance. Ray was known to be a ladies' man. He had a lot of flings in the times he wasn't married. He was known to be very flirty with waitresses and just loved pretty women. But now he seems to be settled down with Patty. Ray seems to be happy. He has no mental health issues, no depression, no substance abuse issues. He was in good spirits since he would be retiring soon. He and Patty get along pretty well. He was making plenty of money being the district attorney at $129,000 per year. Now, when he moved in with Patty, he actually paid off the rest of her mortgage, so it wasn't like he was living there for free. 
Ray had very little assets. He paid cash for his new car. He didn't own any houses anymore. He had a good relationship with his daughter, Laura, who's an adult and in her 20s now. There's no real indication that anything was going to go wrong, but soon their lives would turn upside down. On April 15th, 2005, Ray decides he's going to call out of work. He never does this, but just wanted to take what I like to call a mental health day. These are so important, and I hope you all take them periodically. He wants to go for a long drive in his new Mini Cooper and sightsee and visit an antique shop. Just spend the day with himself, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. Ray calls Patty around 11.30 a.m. and said he's going to head out for this drive. He'll be back in time for dinner. I hope you're having a good day, etc. They said I love you to each other and hung up. Patty comes home from work and starts dinner. Ray hasn't shown up, and a couple hours pass and she's really beginning to worry. She's blowing up his cell phone with calls and texts. Where are you, Ray? She's thinking he must have had an accident or ran into a friend, even though running into a friend wouldn't explain why he's not answering calls and texts. At 11.30 p.m. that night, she finally phones police and reports Ray missing. She explains who he is. Well, being that he's this well-known district attorney, of course, this is going to be a top priority case. A search and a be on the lookout is issued. At 5 o'clock the next day, Ray's car is found. It's about 50 miles from his house. He's parked across the, from this antique shopping area in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. The detectives get into his car and start processing it. His water bottle and cell phone were still in there. His wallet and keys were not. And the doors were locked, so they had to use equipment to open it. The detectives noted there was a very strong cigarette smell in the vehicle. There was also ashes on the passenger floorboard. The thing is, is that Ray didn't smoke. He also hated the smell of cigarettes and didn't like to be around smoke. He damn sure wasn't going to let someone smoke in the passenger seat of his brand new car. There wasn't anything in this car that showed foul play. No blood or weapons. It was like he just got out of it and never came back. His car was within walking distance to the Susquehanna River. The detectives go back to Ray's house, and, there's que- and they're questioning Patty about what Ray might have had on him when he left. She says, well, there is this one thing of his that I can't find, and that's his laptop. Now, the laptop was his court-issued laptop, so it was his business computer for work purposes only. Ray took that with him when he left. It could have been so he could check in on work emails during the day. In 2005, there wasn't any real apps on your cell phone that you could check emails. There might have been on like models like a BlackBerry, but maybe he didn't want his sensitive work emails associated with his cell phone in case it was lost. I just imagine checking emails on a cell phone in 2005 would have been difficult. One of the shop owners across the street from Ray's car said she spotted someone who looked a lot like Ray yesterday by his car, and he was with a very attractive woman who had short brown hair. Now, Ray did have a longtime friend named Barbara who had short brown hair, and she was a smoker. Barbara is a news reporter for a local television station. So they find this woman, and she wasn't anywhere near there that day. She was off on an assignment covering a story, so she's got a solid alibi. The store employee also was not 100% certain that the person she saw was Ray. She just happened to see a man who looked similar outside with a woman. 
Well, the detectives keep this info private from Ray's family. They don't want to fire up rumors that Ray was having an affair and so on. So that's why he's missing. Again, the shop owner wasn't even certain it was him in the first place. They don't want the public to just think he ran off with some other woman, so there's no need to keep searching for him. This info wasn't made public until 13 months later. No one has ever come forward claiming that they were the mystery woman. There's no sign of a struggle or anything in the car that's helpful. Nothing in his cell phone that would give clues to his whereabouts or that he was meeting someone. Three months go by and there's zero leads. Ray's girlfriend, Patty, and his daughter, Laura, are assisting with the investigation the best they could. Laura pleads that if anyone has any information about her dad to please come forward. This is not like him to just disappear. Some of Ray's friends noted he was sleeping a lot more than usual before he disappeared and his vibe seemed to be off a little bit. This could signify depression and possible suicide, but I feel like when we dig into someone's last known moments, we tend to overanalyze a lot of things. It could be something as innocent as just him being a man who is approaching 60 years old and feeling the effects of his age. Those are two very different scenarios. The nearest river is the Susquehanna River. This river was checked extensively for his body, but it wasn't found. If you guys remember back to some of the other cases I've covered, you'll know that a body will float to the top of the river in seven to 10 days. There's literally no signs of Ray. Ray had his wallet on him when he left that day, and detectives are monitoring his credit cards and his checking account. Nothing was happening, though. They also noted he had $100,000 sitting in his savings account, and it wasn't being touched. Three months after his disappearance, a clue finally pops up. Some fishermen are out on the Susquehanna River. They find a laptop. The thing is, is that it's got all kinds of water damage, and it's just exactly what you would imagine it to look like being underwater for three months. They turn it into police in case anyone was missing a laptop. They run the numbers on it, and it belongs to the courthouse. This is Ray's laptop. They noted it was pretty much useless because the hard drive was missing. The hard drive is the motherboard. All the gritty info they need is on there. But without the hard drive, they can't really do anything with it. There isn't going to be fingerprints and DNA on it after being in the water for so long. The fishermen also had their hands all over it as well, so there's some super contamination going on. Two months go by and another clue pops up, one that could hold important information. A woman is walking along the banks of the Susquehanna River. This was within walking distance of where Ray's car was found. She finds Ray's hard drive at the end of edge of the water. She knows this is a hard drive and uses her intuition to turn it over to police. I'm glad that it was her that found it, not me, because looking at it, I wouldn't be able to tell a hard drive from a remote control. <laughs> She's thinking it could have had something bad on it and it wouldn't hurt to turn it in. It's caked in mud and really not in good condition. The detectives make the connection that this is the missing hard drive. They think this could somehow lead them to what happened to Ray. Their IT tech starts working on it and isn't able to get anything out of it because it was so water damaged. He tells them, you're going to have to send this to the FBI because they have more sophisticated technology and they can do a better job reading this. The FBI tech team gives it a try and they aren't able to figure it out either. So there's just one more team that just might be able to retrieve whatever is on this hard drive. 
They send it to the folks at NASA. The team that would be dissecting it contains a member who was known for his work in the Challenger space shuttle disaster. He helped to get info from the black box that showed what caused the explosion. So this guy's a for real badass. But NASA isn't able to help in the end due to how damaged this hard drive was. The hard drive is sent back to the station where it remains in storage to this day. Ray has a nephew named Tony, and Tony is going to be the family spokesperson. He relays info back and forth to the media. Patty and Laura aren't emotionally able to handle it. Tony's nephew makes it clear that there have been over 300 sightings of Ray and none were ever him. One woman even frantically called police because she thought she spotted him in the audience of the Oprah Winfrey show. The tapes are handed over and it's not him sitting in the audience. A biker, who was a part of the Hells Angels gang, comes out and said Ray had his kneecaps busted and his throat slit and he was buried. He won't reveal any more details unless he is given 100% immunity, which is pretty unreachable. So that doesn't go anywhere. The reason they said he was attacked was for Ray putting away one of the gang members. Tony Grecar says there have been so many leads and pretty much every theory you can come up with or imagine, none have ever led to finding Ray. I also think it's important to mention that Laura and Patty have both been questioned a lot. They also both took polygraphs and passed with flying colors. The detectives ruled his family out pretty early on. Now, one thing I've been dying to get to is this next part, because it could be a huge role in this case, or it could be completely insignificant. I'm going to go off the story a little bit, but I'll come back to Ray soon. It's just really important that I bring this up. Do you guys remember back to 2011 when those shocking events that took place at Penn State happened? If you don't remember, I'll give you the backstory, but I want to give you a trigger warning that it involves child sex abuse in case you want to skip ahead. There was a man named Jerry Sandusky. He was an assistant football coach for Penn State. He worked right alongside of head coach Joe Paterno, who was very well known. I don't give a rat's ass about college football, but I know who Joe Paterno is. Jerry Sandusky was convicted of rape and child sex abuse. This man had been sexually abusing young boys for 15 years. He had even started a foundation for at-risk youth. This whole situation is all kinds of horrible. He literally sexually abused boys thousands of times. He even had some of the kids in his home where his wife and adopted children lived. The way he was caught was one of the other assistant coaches who was this young newer guy named Mike McCrary. Mike walked into the locker room shower area and saw major warning here, Jerry having sex with a 10-year-old boy. He ran out and he's kind of lost. He's trying to process what he just saw. Now, he doesn't go to police right away. He instead goes to head coach Joe Paterno and explains what he just saw. Joe is a little skeptical. He's not able to immediately accept that this man who he's worked alongside of for decades was capable of doing something like this. Joe tells him, well, I'm sorry you had to see that. You probably need to tell some other people about what you saw. So the assistant coach goes to police. Joe Paterno was fired from Penn State and major riots happened. All these students were like flipping out because Joe Paterno was so beloved and he had, you know, made this team win all these games all uh, over decades. 
And now they fire him because they felt like Joe knew about what was going on before. There was a lot of rumors going around that he had heard about it, and he never reported it to police. Joe Paterno died not long after all this went down, like within months. His health was deteriorating, and he was suffering from cancer. Later on, the statue of Joe Paterno was taken down from Penn State because, again, folks believed he knew that these acts were going on, and he just kind of dismissed them. Jerry Sandusky faced a maximum of 448 years in prison. He was sentenced to 60 years. He will be eligible in 30 years, which he will be 98 years old. This story, because it was so gruesome, really shook the nation. Now you can't even hear the words Penn State without remembering Jerry Sandusky and his crimes. Decades of being this wholesome, very winning Penn State football team were erased because of this happening. So the reason I told you the story about Jerry Sandusky is because back in 1998, there were allegations that Jerry was sexually abusing children. This was 13 years before he was finally caught. Someone tipped off police back in 98 that Jerry raped dozens of young boys. Ray Grecar ties into this because Ray was the district attorney who decided not to pursue charges against him. I don't know the reason for this. It could be that he didn't feel there was enough evidence, or maybe he was afraid of what it could do to Penn State's legacy. He could have been paid off by Joe Paterno, so there wouldn't be this huge scandal. I'm reaching really far with that one, but it has been brought up a bunch of times. Ultimately, Ray dismissed the allegations against Jerry Sandusky. Jerry continues the abuse until 2011 when he was caught. Some speculate a former victim of Jerry's or maybe one of the kid's parents could have done something to Ray. But at the time of his disappearance in 2005, Jerry is still free and not formally caught yet. Why not take out Jerry himself? In my opinion, I truly don't think this has anything to do with Ray ending up missing seven years later. It's sad looking back, though, and knowing if only Ray would have just charged Jerry, it could have saved hundreds of young boys from what they went through. My heart is with every single one of those victims, and I hope they were able to heal and living great lives today, knowing he's put away for the rest of his life. That was my tie-in to Ray's case. Again, I truly don't think it was a part of his disappearance, but I can't completely rule it out. So we've got Ray's hard drive that was purposely removed from his laptop. No one was able to get the contents of it. We've got Ray's laptop that is useless without the hard drive. We've got Ray's car and his cell phone that doesn't tell us anything except the cigarette smell and the ashes in the passenger seat. None of Ray's credit cards were ever used again. His $100,000 he had in savings was never touched again. What we can't find is his wallet and his car keys. Now, one thing I haven't really touched on is why the investigators were so anxious to get whatever is on this hard drive. They had taken a computer out of Ray's house. This wasn't his work laptop, but more of a general computer that was used in the home. Patty and Ray both shared it. Well, they discovered some really interesting searches in the search history. Just a couple of them I will read verbatim. Number one, how to fry a hard drive. Number two, how can water damage a laptop? Someone, it could have been Ray or it could have been Patty or it could have been somebody else, searched those terms on the family computer. No one knows why. I don't know what the time frame was for those searches, like the day of his disappearance or in the months leading up to it, but it's obvious Ray or someone else didn't want whatever was on that hard drive to ever be revealed. They were successful because Ray disappeared 16 years ago and no one can crack it. 
His colleagues say dumping his laptop into the river would be very out of character. Ray was a follow-the-evidence-where-it-leads kind of prosecutor, so disposing the computer into the river was completely foreign. They also say they were 100% certain Ray would have known they would find those searches on his computer. He's a prosecutor. He sees this type of evidence all the time. But one colleague thinks he has the answer for this, and it was not deceptive at all. He told investigators that Ray had been asking around about hard drive erasing software as he prepared for his upcoming retirement because he wanted to clean his computer of sensitive court-related files before handing it back to the county. I read an article, and it's shocking how unconventional this case has been, one of the most unconventional I've ever seen. Just a few examples. These don't lean one way or the other, but they just seem different. First, it was this very small police department who led the investigation. The chief's office is like a closet. I'm not knocking a police department for their lack of amenities or anything like that, but there's literally a a small room with a desk and boxes of stuff sitting around with raised files in them. The day Jerry Sandusky was brought in for his first hearing on the sex abuse charges, you guys, I remember watching this on the television as it was happening. The lead investigator of Ray's case was sitting on the roof of the courthouse with a sniper rifle in case anything popped off. The other investigator worked the metal detector at the court doors. The former district attorney who replaced Ray, he was a very prominent figure in Ray's case. Well, he no longer practices and instead works at the Home Depot. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things. They're just different. I'm going to go over three theories about Ray's disappearance that I've thought a lot about. And if you have any of your own, please leave them in the comments below because I'd love to hear them. The first one is the suicide theory. Many speculate Ray committed suicide. He jumped into the Susquehanna River. Nine years prior to Ray's disappearance, his older brother committed suicide. He jumped off a bridge, and Ray was pretty shook up about it, obviously, but some think Ray might have done the exact same thing. Ray didn't have any history of suicide attempts or any obvious depression. Also, Ray was this successful lawyer who was looking forward to his upcoming retirement. He doesn't really fit the profile of someone who wants to end their life. One issue is that most bodies are found. In fact, two children drowned in the Susquehanna River in 2008, and the river was much higher than it was in 2005. The children were found in less than three days, and the search wasn't nearly as extensive as the search for Ray's body. Ironically, I drive over the Susquehanna River twice a day when commuting to work, obviously quite a distance from where Ray disappeared. It's about three hours away. Bodies are always found when they go into the water. It was fishing season and the water was really low and the bridge Ray would have jumped from wasn't very high. Of course, there are other ways he could have committed suicide, but the back, the lack of a body makes this a tough theory. This area was combed by investigators over and over again. What are the odds he would never be found? I also find it strange that he would lock his car and take his keys and his wallet with him. The second theory is someone did something to Ray. So Ray has a list 10 miles long of enemies. You've got pretty much every defendant Ray has put away for the last 20 years. In his personal life, he didn't have enemies. He did have two ex-wives that he didn't keep in contact with, and we don't know if they were on good terms or not. But these women have moved on and remarried and so on. Perhaps he got out of his car at the antique shop and was run into by someone random or a previous defendant that Ray put away was waiting for him. 
I think the second half of that is hard to believe because what are the odds someone would know Ray was going to take the day off, drive to a shopping area 50 miles away, and then wait to attack him? I think there's more of a possibility that it was a random attack. The third and last theory seems to be the most believable. That is that one day Ray just walked away from his life. I think if anyone was able to cover their tracks and stage a disappearance, it would be Ray. He knew how to do it after being in a courtroom for so many years and seeing how evidence worked. The points that contradict this is that Ray would have gotten a big pension once he retired. Why not wait until after that to disappear? His banking account, his bank account, including his $100,000 he had in savings, was never touched. His credit cards were never used again. Ray's second wife told the story that one day back in the 90s, she came home with all this furniture that Ray didn't like. He thought it looked hideous, and he was pretty pissed off with her. So he got in his car and he left. He took a plane to Cleveland and watched a professional baseball game and then returned to work on Monday morning. This made me laugh because I can't fathom getting into a fight with your spouse and then leaving on an airplane to go away for the night, but that's what Ray did. So he's known to take off before, but he always comes right back and, you know, goes to work. There was a homeless guy across the country that had his picture released publicly because people thought he was Ray. I saw the photo and they did look a lot alike. He just looked like a very rough version of Ray. It ended up not being him. The guy even had to provide fingerprint samples and so on. Kind of a part two to this theory is that Ray is in witness protection. This was quickly dismissed because Ray didn't really qualify for witness protection also, his money was never touched. That's one of the first things you would have to do is change your money to a different account with a new name. They also wouldn't have spent years and tons of money to find Ray if he was in witness protection. They would have just closed his case. Ray was legally declared dead in July of 2011. If alive today, Ray would be 76 years old. He is remembered as one of the best prosecutors in Pennsylvania, except for the whole not putting Jerry Sandusky away thing. Some believe he is alive today. Much like the Richie Edwards case, he may be living the good life somewhere, although it's unfortunate that he wouldn't tell his daughter at the very minimum where he was going or make any connection to her to let her know he's safe. Ray, wherever you are, I hope you're at peace, whether it's here on Earth or passed on to the cosmos. That's it for this week. Thanks for sticking around. Take care and much love to you all.